Epilogue Khalid and Bathija finally made it back to his residence in Dubai after weeks of traveling publicly through numerous countries. He wasn't sure whether he was being followed or tracked, but he had done everything in his power to ensure that his movements were not traced back to Grande Prairie, Canada. When R.I. had taken over his troops, he had no choice but to wait with Bahija for their return. He detested that role because he had been promised some sort of revenge against those who had ruined the plans to bring the world under their subjection with the successful release of the Genoverian. But then everything had fallen apart. Today's world was the same as it had always been. His forces destroyed to prevent their capture along with the remote detonation of the Gulfstream G950 suborbital prototype space plane and the unexpectedly quiet Sheol network. During his arduous travel, he had the fortune to meet up with a Sheol agent who informed him of the destruction of the Sheol network through a phenomenal computer virus. Whenever they attempted to eradicate it, the virus would mutate, completely shutting down the network in different ways. For now, all agents were without instruction, waiting patiently for the virus to be removed so they could resume activities. Khalid concluded that Julie Targus had somehow infected their network with this virus before Ori killed her. Sheol's head could no longer communicate with its body, and all actions had ceased until the network could be resurrected or a secondary backup means initiated. It was a win-loss for Sheol, since they had destroyed those dreaded journals, shut down the internet site, and eliminated Julie Targus, but they remained maimed with no network. For now, he would just wait, having more than enough funds to last him several lifetimes while maintaining this lifestyle. If it took an eternity, he would be patient and ready until she all would strike again. After all, he could never age. Looking at Bahija, Khalid, whose true name is Dagan Mukadam, wondered how long she could wait. Over time she would age, and her life would be spent waiting in expectation. He decided he would help her live as pleasantly as possible until that day occurred. Even though he didn't want to admit it, he loved her and wanted to spend every moment with her. He would give her everything she wanted until she all rose and granted him his desire to strike out again. Pastor James finished praying with Sean Doyle, previously known as Sean Duquesne, and watched as he left his office to greet his family that waited patiently outside the pastor's office for him. Agent Carter hadn't said much about the family, only that they needed a new start and he was the only person she could think of to help get them started. Pastor James found Sean a remarkable man, deeply rooted in the faith, extremely intelligent, and with a desire to teach others. He would make an excellent teacher in their town once an opening became available. Pastor James knew God wouldn't have sent him this far only to have him not find anything. So far, he was working as a substitute teacher. The students loved his teaching and ability to challenge their thinking in a way that was both creative and energizing. His wife Leslie was a wonderful woman, and their children Nietzsche and Brian were already great additions to the church. They had taken to practically every youth activity as if they were starving for it. God said the pastor as he watched the Doyle family walking in the distance. I don't know why Agent Carter sent the Doyles here, I know I promised her never to ask, but I want to thank you for bringing them to our healing town. They have been sunshine in an area filled with so much hurt. I pray that you guide them and help them take root here. And thank you for Agent Carter. Continue to protect her and bless her. Amen. Oh, come on, Kay, said Brooke, leaning over Keiko's office desk. What's wrong with it? She smirked. There's no way I'm going to call our group that, said Keiko, trying hard not to laugh. 
Oh, come on, Root pleaded. We finally have a full team. We got our two agents Jackson and Romero for cyber-terrorism. And we fill the positions for domestic intelligence, international intelligence, physical chemistry, quantum physics, and nanotechnology. It's a perfect name. Keiko laughed. There is no way I'm going to go with the name turd, T-E-R-D, as our official name. I mean, how does that roll off anyone's tongue? It's time to call turd. Contact Agent Carter. That's ridiculous. Keiko snickered. Brooke chuckled. It did sound bad, but it had taken her a long time to come up with. Technology Extreme Response Department. So, what it spelled turd? Well, it sounds better than what he came up with. Great. It's like you went in with thesaurus looking for the most obscure words and threw them together. Global Response Enigmatic Contingency Unit, I mean. What the heck does enigmatic mean anyway? Brooke countered. And contingency starts with a C, not a lie. Like, what? You couldn't find a Y word? And the word gray is spelled with an A, not an E. And you didn't even include the letter U from the word unit. Yep, Keiko answered, no good Y words. I like the word gray and wanted to fit something into it. Back to the drawing board, said Brooke, sitting back in a chair and taking a sip of coffee from her mug. I never thought this would be so hard. I thought putting together the introduction video for our new members would be more challenging, but this is mind-boggling. Yeah, I saw it. Well done. I like how you included the satellite footage of Bouchard's complex attack by she all and those inhuman moves by that dark assassin," said Keiko, pausing as the memory of already came to the surface. However, instead of doubt and fear, she embraced the unknown and made it her purpose to prepare her group for the inexplicable. Brooke saw her friend's distant look. If that Terminator dude was indeed a demon, at least we know we can slow it down or even kill it. I don't know. We can only do what we can do. Hopefully, the answers will come in time. If they don't, we'll just wing it. Life is unpredictable, Kay. At times, it can be a paradox like a mirror within a mirror. A mirror of confusion. We can walk the path in front of us instead of floundering aimlessly around, trying to make sense of what we don't understand, said Brooke. Keiko smirked. And when did you become so philosophical? Since I finished reading The Lord of the Rings, there's some good stuff in that book. Brooke laughed. Just kidding. I had a lot of time to digest what happened to us and figured you can only do what you can. It'll just have to do. You're right, said Keiko as an image flooded her mind. Or were you lunging at them with incredible speed and no evidence of stopping before falling to the floor? Was that coincidence, as with everything else from Prophet Barabbas and Pastor James, to Sean Duquesne and Matthew Bouchard? Was it coincidence, or was someone looking out over everything, navigating all the intricacies of chance? Keiko had no clue and no evidence of that. And, until she did, she would for the first time in her life, have an open mind about it all. Keiko looked at Brooke. I like Gray. It signifies that we investigate those things that don't make much sense. We develop an action plan to remove its limbo-like existence and bring it into the light. We just have to work on what letter E means, said Keiko. And the letter Y. Brooke countered. Leave it. Oh, brother. Brooke breathed deeply in defeat. You're the boss. Gray it is. You know Kay. She said as inspiration hit her. I think nerd may be a better name. We got so many eggheads here. I think it suits us perfectly. Keiko rolled her eyes. Gray.
Reyes, Siriasus, and Fasa sat on their thrones waiting for the arrival of Pravis. Anger boiled within the three fallen archangels as they waited for their subordinate to make his appearance. The anger wasn't focused entirely on him, but mainly on the outcome of the recent battle. Disappointment and frustration filtered down from Samiaza through Vetha's Nibba to the three about all the objectives of the battle not being met. There were still several elements left unresolved. Finally, Pravis was escorted into the throne room by two guardians. He became apprehensive when they didn't return to their posts but remained on either side of him. Pravis bowed deeply in respect and waited for the three to address him. The journals have been destroyed, said Reyes. The internet site and their ability to do further cyber damage has been neutralized, said Siriasis. And both Anne-Marie Duquesne and Julie Tarkas are dead, said Fasa. Pravis nodded and waited for more to be said. When the three remained quiet, he didn't know whether they wanted him to comment on their statements, so he allowed the silence to build in the room. Reyes spoke first. Those were the main goals of this venture. However, the Duquesnes were not eliminated, and their current location is unknown. Also, our network was neutralized by some virus program left by Julie Targus before Ori killed her. Pravis shifted his feet, afraid where this was leading. Reyes continued. First, Ari was not supposed to have taken over leadership of the troops, but he took that responsibility from Dagdan Mukadam and sloppily mishandled it. Second, Michael stopped him before he could eliminate the Duquesnes. And third, we have no connection to our outer core affiliates, making communication and the flow of instructions slower than normal, pushing us back to pre-industrial times. We have met our major goals, but it is still bittersweet. Pravis looked at Reyes, hoping to speak. Reyes nodded. I gave Ori explicit orders, and none of those instructions gave him the right to change the plans and nullify what Mukadam was supposed to do. I can't be in two places at once, and I can't take fault for Ari's stupidity. Now, as for the Duquesnes, give me some minions, and I'll personally take care of it myself. I doubt Michael will show up, since he seems to have some connection with this Keiko Carter FBI agent. And, as for the virus, that was something totally unaccounted for, said Pravis. Reyes looked at Siriasis to talk. If Reyes continued, his anger would have damned Pravis to eternal bondage. Pravis, said Siriasis, the Duquesnes have disappeared again, and Ari has been properly punished. However, Michael's unexpected disappearance during his battle with Betha's Neba to protect this Keiko Carter woman was something totally unforeseen. Too much about this woman remains unknown, and will have to be investigated eventually. For now, our main concern is getting our network back up. I agree, said Pravis. Good. Then you also agree this was your operation, said Fasa. Pravis hesitated before answering. Yes, he said. Then you are responsible for all that happened under your command. Correct? Asked Faza. Pravis remained silent. Answer us, shouted Reyes. Yes, it was my command. Pravis answered slowly. Good, said Faza. Then you will be rewarded for your successes and punished for your failures. For your successes in this operation, we grant you with a promotion. Reyes couldn't contain himself any longer and cut Fasa off. And for allowing the Duquesnes to escape, failing to eliminate Julie Targus in time to prevent her from shutting down our network, failing to foresee the connection between Keiko Carter and Michael, and failing to figure out how this woman was able to be at the complex at the precise time of our attack, we demote you. Wait, what? Pravis was beside himself, not understanding what the demotion meant. 
This means you remain the same, said Fasa. Consider yourself fortunate. It could have been far worse. I wanted you shackled and tormented for your failures, said Reyes. Fasa continued. As long as the Duquesnes stay quiet, they are no concern to us. But as far as Keiko Carter goes, you need to figure out this connection between her and Michael. She went from a nuisance with Agent Martin to an enigma. The fact that both of them appeared were not expected isn't coincidence. Leave the network. She all and Dagen Mukadam to us. We'll eventually get everything working again. But Keiko Carter is your only task for now. Don't mess this up. A cold, malevolent glare flowed through Pravis' eyes as he nodded to the three. He now accepted the fact that his past interactions with this human female who had Michael as her personal guardian was only the beginning of something far more intricate. Pravis would have to be very careful in how he approached this investigation. Although he was a master when it came to deception and recognizance, this would be a worthy challenge. And boy, did he have plans for her. Thank you for listening to my narration of the Masters of Deceit trilogy. My name is Wade, and have a blessed day. This concludes the Masters of Deceit trilogy. You can continue the adventures of Agents Carter and C. Cole Lee in the spin-off series called Quantum Link, The Chronicles of Grey, Book 1. Quantum Link is only available in Amazon as either paperback or digital copy. Enjoy a small taste of Quantum Link, The Chronicles of Grey. Preface only a few years have passed since FBI agents Keiko Yumeko Carter and Brooks C. Cole Lee investigated a horrendous mass suicide in North Dakota by the religious cult called the Children of Barabbas. What looked like a straightforward investigation of an unfortunate event soon revealed inexplicable connections to the global terrorist organization Shewal, a group of well-connected individuals with influence in every government and influential corporation. Unbeknownst to the two FBI agents, Sheol's existence spanned 2,000 years, and their impressive reach allowed them to have a hand in orchestrating major historical events. What the agents stumbled upon was Sheol's attempt to introduce a Genovirian into the global population to cause a major pandemic, devastating life as we know it. Over 90% of the population would perish, except for those individuals associated with Sheol, the result would be a reboot of the human population on Earth. The agents convinced the world's nations of the upcoming event and prevented the initiation of this first-phase global infection, resulting in a full global alert that prevented Sheol from initiating their plans. As a reward for their insightful work, the FBI director created a new department, under Keiko's leadership, to deal with the investigation and exploration of the secretive organization behind the near-global catastrophe. With Brooke's help, they would work with the intelligence community, IC, and other government agencies to investigate this secretive threat. You can read the full story in the book Symbiote, What Lies Within, Book Two of the Masters of Deceit trilogy. The story continues months later in She All, The Truth Exposed, Book 3 of the Masters of Deceit trilogy, as agents Keiko and Brooke began interviewing individuals from various global and national agencies to fill positions in their newly formed department, a novel multi-tactile group able to uncover any unconventional domestic or international threat. Their goal? To root out anything they could find on the global terrorist group that mysteriously fell off the grid after the global alert thwarted their plans. 
Eventually, the hard work of the first two members of the new department, Agent Jackson from Homeland Security and Agent Romero from the NSA, finally identified cyber activity from she all on the internet that directed them to Alberta, Canada, in the Grande Prairie region. After an arduous trip, Keiko, Brooke, and several Canadian agents made their way to the region where they eventually encountered Shewal forces. During the confrontation, they met a colossal male, Shewal agent exhibiting superhuman strength and abilities. Garbed all in black with a malevolent ancient evil emanating from his eyes, the enormous agent guided his forces while instilling a deep-seated fear into both Keiko and Brooke. With fortune on their side, Keiko and Brooke overcame overwhelming odds and repelled the assault. Days later, the two agents reflected on their experience with the huge She-All agent and admitted that there were things on this earth that they did not understand. Unseen forces waiting for the opportunity to leap from the shadows, desiring to wreak havoc, unexplainable phenomenon, and unbelievable evidence of types of individuals that should not exist. These inexplicable unknowns were the root reasons behind the government's creation of a special department to handle such events under Keiko's direction. The global response for an enigmatic, unfamiliarity unit, known as Grey. This novel, Quantum Link, The Chronicles of Grey, continues the extraordinary cases of Grey as a spin-off from the Masters of Deceit series. In the vein of the X-Files, the Chronicles of Grey explores the unexplainable to ultimately protect the world from forces both seen and unseen. Since 1975, the J. Edgar Hoover Building stood as the main headquarters for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, for nearly half a century. Its out-of-date design had 11 floors of exterior concrete block-shaped structures surrounding brown-tinted windows and nearly 3 million square feet of interior space. Standing at 935 Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest in Washington, D.C., this FBI headquarters was the hub for many known and not so widely known departments. One such black op department, formed in recent years, was the global response for an enigmatic unfamiliarity, known to those with a high clearance level as the Agents of Grey. Situated on the 11th floor of the E Street Northwest side, near the back of the building, the reclusive Department of Grey hummed with early morning activity. With a total of 11 agents, plus one administrative assistant, the relatively small group was tight-knit, all with specific areas of expertise. Two agents were extremely adept in cyber-terrorism, two in dealing with domestic intelligence activities. Another two dealt with international intelligence activities, while one was strong in the field of physical chemistry, one proficient in quantum physics, one excellent in cutting-edge nanotechnology, one supervisor, and one lead assistant director of the group, Keiko Yumeko Carter. At nearly 30, assistant director Carter had already established herself as a fast-rising star, indispensable to the Bureau. Her past accomplishments and never-tiring push for excellence had paved a rare path to her current position in a novel department of her own design, a department existing to investigate things that did not make sense. Its motto was to approach the unfathomable with an open mind, to assess its global effects, and to take precise, immediate action. Keiko loved to say, We develop an action plan to remove its limbo-like existence and bring it into the light, 
whenever they encountered such enigmas. Being a woman of both Japanese and African-American descent in a male-dominant field, she had no qualms about working hard to set herself above others and expected no less from her group. One of her strengths was always focusing forward while never forgetting her past experiences. Due to humanity's faulty long-term memory, history tends to repeat itself if we do not learn from our past mistakes. Keiko's personality was to learn from the past and use that experience to guide her and prevent that particular human trait from keeping her from moving forward. The Agents of Grey consisted of Agent Brooks C. Cole Lee, current supervisor of Grey Agents, and Keiko's close friend, the cyberterrorism team of Agents Jackson from Homeland Security and Romero from the National Security Agency, NSA, the domestic terrorism team Agents Potts and Smith, previously from Homeland Security, the international team of Agent Thompson from MI6 and Agent Ivanov from Slushbov Neshny Razvetki, SVR, Russian Intelligence Agency, the physical chemistry subject matter expert Dr. John Lee, PhD, consultant and graduate of Tsinghua University, the quantum physics expert Dr. Graham Atherton, consultant and graduate from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and Dr. John Doe, on loan from the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA. Dr. Doe's personal information remained locked and classified, but he came highly recommended for his expertise in nanotechnology. As for Keiko and Brooke, they were the only agents adept in the biological sciences, Brooke graduated from Columbia University with a Master of Science in Immunology and Infectious Diseases, while Keiko double-majored in Chemistry and Molecular Biology and minored in Computer Science for her bachelor's degree from John Hopkins University and got her PhD in Biological Chemistry from the same university. The subject matter expert members were not required to be on-site daily, but they needed to attend monthly meetings either remotely through their computers or in person. In the case of an actual event or active work, they were required to be on sit until the case was resolved. All other members were full-time on-site agents of Gray. For this month's full staff meeting, all were present except for Dr. Graham Atherton, who could not get away from his responsibilities at MIT but was able to dial in. The department meeting room was not remarkable, in the middle of the room was an oval black wooden table able to accommodate 12 black forks, leather chairs, and three conference speakerphones. At one end of the room, a 100-inch flat-screen television hung snugly on the wall for presentations and video conference calls, while on the other end of the room was a waist-high cabinet spanning the length of the wall. On top of the cabinet sat an expensive Jura coffee espresso machine, one of two perks Keiko had been able to obtain for her team, a twin Jura was in the break room. Everyone sat quietly in the meeting room, paying attention to whatever was on their laptop screens as they waited for Keiko. After ten minutes, Brooke looked at the clock on the lower right side of her screen and figured that Keiko's meeting with the director was taking longer than normal. She looked up from her laptop. If this doesn't happen soon, let's reschedule, Brooke said to the group. I'll do my best, said Dr. Atherton on the conference phone, but no guarantees. I had to move around several meetings just so I could dial in for this one. I may have to leave unexpectedly. Nearly everyone in the room either rolled their eyes or slightly shook their heads. 
Dr. Atherton was quite brilliant in his field of expertise and well-respected. However, he had a poor conception of his own importance due to his over-inflated ego. We'll be sure to send you the minutes, said Brooke, and since there's no pressing matter that requires your immediate input, Assistant Director Carter would understand if you're unable to attend. Brooke made sure to emphasize her friend's official title since Keiko was the only one of the group that he was not his normal arrogant self with. He had no problems voicing and challenging Brooke's authority, even though he was aware she had an unspoken close relationship with Keiko. He'd once dared to bring that up with Keiko and found himself on the receiving end of a sharp tongue lashing and near immediate dismissal from the group. So, whenever Brooke brought up Keiko's official title, he listened. I'll make every possible effort to attend, he said softly through the conference phone. Interpedes two's called upon Param Canis, said Agent Ivanov in near perfect Latin. English, said Agent Thompson, turning to his partner, wondering if Ivanov was going to provide the translation. Agent Ivanov smiled, shaking his head. Agents Potts and Smith both smiled. Both the domestic terrorism and international intelligence teams were fluent in several foreign languages, with Latin being the one they all understood well. Whenever they wanted to say something either rude or an off-color joke, they used Latin. Agent Ivanov had basically called Dr. Atherton a little dog that just put his tail between his legs. You know I can easily translate that later with my phone app, said Dr. Atherton. As a matter of fact, I just did, and you can. Sorry I'm late, said Keiko as she rushed into the meeting room. What did I miss? Dr. Graham Atherton was just about to tell us how smart his phone is, Agent Ivanov said with a thick Russian accent as a devilish grin formed on his face. Keiko glanced at each person and immediately assessed the situation. Well, she said, sitting in her chair, I'm sure that's something you two can talk about on your own time. As for now, let's try to make this as quick as possible. Brooke. Brooke pressed several keys on her laptop and connected to the room's large monitor. Displayed was a list of topics with the name of each person intended to briefly talk on the subject. Time slowly passed as several uninteresting reports were given by several teams before it was the cyberterrorism team's turn. Agent Romero gave the monthly report. It was a rather quiet month. Typical non-sophisticated threats and minor hacks of non-essential servers, said Agent Romero. He shrugged his shoulders before continuing. Not much of a report, but I guess no news is good news. Brooke looked at Agent Romero's partner. Anything you would like to add? No, that covers just about everything, Agent Jackson answered. I have a question, Keiko interrupted. What non-essential servers were hacked? Agent Romero looked at his computer. Just three, Yahoo, YouTube, and Twitter, which is just about common for each of those companies. Seems as though nearly every want-to-be hacker practices on them. Keiko rubbed her chin. What's the stat on each? She asked Agent Romero. Stat? Oh, the result of the hack. Let's see. He paused to pull up the information on his computer. After a few seconds, he continued. Okay. For Yahoo, 10,000 accounts had their information stolen, for Twitter, roughly 12,000, and for YouTube, Jackson, you got that one. Yeah, said Agent Jackson as he quickly looked on his computer. 
15, with one causing an uproar more than the others. One, who's the count? asked Keiko. Um, Stephen Pritchard, a.k.a. Gamer Goofs, a pro-gamer commentator. He put a funny video on YouTube under his alias and almost immediately got hacked where his personal information got revealed to the public. His company fired him since he was, in a way, degrading one of the top gamers out there. A raven diver. Agent Jackson looked to his partner for confirmation who nodded. Anyway, he claimed that his account was hacked and promised to sue YouTube. Right? Good luck with that, said Brooke. Looks like Raven Diva has some hacker friends. Keiko took a sip of green tea from her mug. Level of hack, she asked, already deciding that this was one of those cases leading nowhere. Unknown, Agent Romero responded. What do you mean, unknown? asked Keiko, shocked. YouTube is looking into the hack, but has nothing so far. They quietly acknowledged there was an unauthorized use of several protocols, but no evidence of a breach, said Agent Romero. Sounds like an inside job, Agent Thompson chimed in, nothing so mysterious there. He was obviously tired of the topic and wanted to move on. Keiko glanced at the British International Intelligence Agent before responding to Agent Romero. It seems like nothing, but monitor YouTube's progress. What was the pro-gamer's name? Agent Romero again looked at his laptop. He had not been prepared for so many questions about something of so little importance. A Tiffany Allen. Her profile is coming in now. She's... Wow, that's... Interesting. Agent Jackson leaned over to look at his partner's laptop. His eyes popped open. Keiko took another sip and waited patiently. Sorry, said Agent Romero, but it looks as though Tiffany Allen is the daughter of the one and only Elijah Allen, founder and owner of Nanodyne Robotics. What? Dr. Doe spoke up for the first time in the meeting. Are we talking about Dr. Elijah Allen, PhD from MIT, one of the most brilliant minds in nanotechnology on the planet, that Elijah Allen? Yes, answered Agent Romero. Why would a multi-billionaire let his daughter be a pro-gamer? asked Dr. Atherton through the conference phone. Keiko ignored the question. So, Agents Romero and Jackson, do you think Elijah Allen defended his daughter by hacking YouTube and revealing the true name of Gamer Goofs? He wouldn't do that, Dr. Doe answered immediately. Everyone looked at Dr. Doe, shocked at his outburst. Do you have something else to add as to why you believe he didn't do it? Keiko asked him. Dr. Doe remained quiet. I asked you a question, Dr. Doe, said Keiko, showing her irritation. I. It just seems as though someone of his stature wouldn't stoop to such barbaric means of defending his daughter. That's all, he responded. Keiko knew Dr. Doe was not giving the full truth and figured that it was somehow related to DARPA secrecy, so she did not push it. Keiko focused back on the cyberterrorism team. As intriguing as this matter's becoming, it's not in our scope of interest. Please forward all information to the appropriate department, Brooke. Brooke nodded. Okay, moving on. It took another 15 minutes to cover the rest of the items on Brooke's list. At the end of the meeting, Keiko thanked everyone for their hard work and encouraged them to remain diligent. 
The goal was to prevent unexpected events from escalating, and having nothing occurring was considered a blessing in disguise. As everyone filtered out, Keiko motioned for Brooke to hang behind. Once they were alone and the door closed, Keiko spoke up. So, what do you think? She asked Brooke. It's a teenage pro-gamer with a smart hacker buddy. It's nothing we should be focusing on. Let someone else deal with it, Brooke said, shrugging. Keiko shook her head. Dr. John Doe. I'm talking about Dr. John Doe. He knows something and isn't sharing it with us. I know there are certain levels of secrecy in DARPA he's not allowed to discuss, but I hate the idea that someone on our team isn't being forthright with us. Oh, said Brooke, pausing before continuing, since we can't get anything from Dr. Doe, then maybe we should look more into this CEO, Elijah Allen, from Nanodyne Robotics. If there's really something there between the two, it could force Dr. Doe's hand. Good. It's most likely nothing, but at least it'll show Doe that he has to play ball with us while he's a part of my team. I have a feeling he's playing both sides, said Keiko. Playing both sides? Yep. Keiko finished her tea. A mole. If we happen to run across something that can benefit DARPA, I bet they'll get their hands on it before we even close our reports. Come on, Kay Amol. Yep. Technically, we're a Black Op division, and I'm sure DARPA has theirs. There's no doubt that Black Op groups spy on each other whenever they have the opportunity, Keiko said, but I won't have it in my department. Brooke turned her head toward Dr. Doe's cubicle. She could not see his space, but the action showed her displeasure at possibly having a spy in their ranks. You sure, Kay? Nope, not sure at all, Keiko smiled. But Dr. Allen seems important to Dr. Doe. Let's stir Dr. Allen's pot and agitate the mole. And get him to surface, Brooke finished. You want the twins on this one? Keiko looked at Brooke, confused. Twins. Men in black, Kay. You know, the two alien computer geeks that... Oh, never mind, Brooke said, giving up. Keiko chuckled. Yes, get Agents Jackson and Romero on it, and keep it under wraps by having them report directly to you. Brooke glanced to see if anyone was looking at them before changing topics with Keiko. You know, she began and then paused indecisively before continuing, it's been several years now since our trip to Grande Prairie, Canada, but... Why are you bringing this up, Brooke? Keiko said, not happy at bringing up the past. Because I need to talk about it. I can't just shut off things like you. Keiko leaned back in her chair, motioned for Brooke to continue, and folded her arms across her chest. Look, I know we reported everything we encountered, have video recordings as a backup, and have the full support of the Bureau, but sometimes I still wake up at night. Scared. I still see that thing, that Terminator-like man jumping over a 20-foot fence. Do you remember how he stared at us with that unnatural red glow pulsating behind his dark sunglasses? I tell myself, every time I think about this, that this really happened, that it wasn't a dream. I know it's not a dream because the Bureau would have never given us such a large budget if it wasn't true. But Kay, where do we go from there? We just filed everything away and remained diligent hoping to pick up any hints of where they disappeared to. Brooke looked at Keiko to see if she wanted to say anything. Keiko smiled weakly and nodded for Brooke to finish. 
I know you remember when we finally caught that Terminator and had him cornered in a room, how he held that poor girl by the neck with one of his hands, how he dropped her to the floor like she was nothing, and how the sheer evil in his eyes was enough just to. Brooke shivered and paused before continuing. We both had assault rifles, and we unloaded everything we had, and he just shook it off and jumped at us like it was nothing. Dark assassin, Keiko mumbled. Yes, that's what he called himself. We were dead, Kay, he had us, and then he just died. The group he was with were either dead or disappeared, and we never heard of them again. What the hell? This isn't closure. They're still out there, Kay. Every once in a while, I have this stupid dream that they're still watching and are plotting to get us somehow. Brooke took a deep breath. And just when I think it's a distant memory, this stupid dream pops in my head. You got to tell me, how do you handle this? How do you stop your subconscious from dwelling on this? Sensing that Brooke was finished, Keiko unfolded her arms and leaned toward her friend. It is our job to embrace the unknown and inexplicable. Our group is the point man in the bureau, and many times we won't have the answer to the why. But, damn it, it's our job to provide the how. How to stop it from proliferating. How to stop it from reoccurring. How to stop it from affecting our way of life. With the unknown, there's always collateral damage, but we have to reduce that damage as much as we can. And if that collateral damage is us, I didn't get a master's to have a freaking X-Files job in the bureau, Brooke responded, trying to ease the tension. Keiko smiled. Brooke was tougher than most by embracing her fears instead of walling them off. By facing them, she was slowly becoming stronger while others decided to forget and make it a distant memory. The only problem with that approach was that memories sooner or later resurfaced and would have to be dealt with. The way Keiko handled her fear was to compartmentalize it, lock it in a vault, and put the key away just in case it needed to be opened and dealt with later in the future. This approach had served her well her entire life, and she really did not know any other way to handle it. X-Files, ha! Huh? Do you remember what you said to me after this Canada case we had years ago? Asked Keiko. Brooke shrugged. I talk so much I can barely remember what I said days ago. Okay, Brooke, Keiko chuckled. You said these exact words several years ago. We can only do what we can do. Hopefully the answers will come in time. If they don't, we'll just wing it. Life is unpredictable, Kay. We can walk the path in front of us instead of floundering aimlessly around, trying to make sense of what we don't understand. No way, I said that. Asked Brooke, already knowing the answer since Keiko's recall was beyond exceptional. Yep, and you were right. We have to keep on moving forward. These dreams you have is your way of moving forward. By rehashing the past. No, by dealing with it. You're not me, Brooke. Be you. I can easily shut things down and blot them out, but it's always there. I just choose to file them away. That's how I work. You need to face the past and deal with it your own way. I guess this will help you move forward. I'd rather do it your way, Brooke said softly. Is it affecting your work? Are you doubting if this is what you want to do? Asked Keiko. Nope, no doubt whatsoever. Just tired of Terminator Man popping up in my dreams and giving me cold sweats. That's all. I just want him to go away, said Brooke, 
straightening up in her chair. I guess I just needed to get this off my chest. I'm good. Keiko nodded. Fine, so with this CEO of Nanodyne Robotics, how should the twins proceed? Brooke thought for a few moments before answering. Well, since we have undocumented authority to supersede the privacy and rights of nearly everyone on the planet, let's go through the daughter to get to the father. Keiko copped her head. She did not like the idea of manipulating innocent minors. Come on, Kay, said Brooke, recognizing the worried look on Keiko's face. She's a pro-gamer. She's a public figure. That's our back door. Seriously, the girl won't be touched. Okay, let's do it, said Keiko. Oh, and Brooke, don't call them twins. There aren't many here with your sense of humor. Brooke stood up, put her hands on her hips, and smiled. That's their loss. Thank you for listening to my narration of one of the chapters from Quantum Link, The Chronicles of Grey. If interested, again the book is available on Amazon as either paperback or digital copy. Audio narration is not available at this time. Jeffrey Dully Chapman is hard at work finishing up book two to The Chronicles of Grey and is hoping to have it available by 2024. Also, to view or listen to literary works, both past and future, and more exclusive content, join Jeffrey's Patreon page. In the Patreon search field, just type Jeffrey W. Chapman. Join and continue the journey. My name is Fiona, and have an awesome day.